Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, we discuss the past and possible future of the U.S. Postal Service. Our guest, Richard John, is a historian who specializes in the history of business, technology, communications, and American political development. He teaches and advises graduate students in Columbia University's Ph.D. program in communications and is a member of the core faculty of the Columbia History Department, where he teaches courses on the history of capitalism and the history of communication. Richard John is the author of Spreading the News, the American Postal System from Franklin to Morse, and recently wrote the Washington Post article, The Founders Never Intended the U.S. Postal Service to be Managed Like a Business. Richard John, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Happy to be here. So what's the post office doing in the news today? What's happening with the U.S. Postal Service? Well, like a lot of uh, large enterprises. The post office is in financial trouble as a result of the coronavirus. Uh, The volume is down. Postmaster General went to uh, Congress asking for uh, some revenue to help tide the institution over. Secretary of Treasury said no. President Trump has recently called the institution a joke, said he wants major changes in order for there to be any uh, transfer of funds. Post offices uh, been in debt before, but it's generally floated its own debt. Not nothing like what's happening now. So it's a it's a not entirely unprecedented crisis, but it is a crisis like that confronting many other large organizations. The big difference is is that uh, at the moment it doesn't appear the post office is going to get any money, uh, which is remarkable considering the amounts of money that are being shelled out for other things. Uh, what what is what is the criticism of the post office, and what is what can we learn from its its origins and its past to help us here? The post office today is seen by certain libertarian uh, think tank uh, organizers, theoreticians as an example of government bloat, mismanagement, organization that could be run better uh, in a neoliberal frame. I don't believe that that criticism has a great deal of popular support. The polls I've seen suggest the post office is uh, one of the most popular, if not the most popular, of all federal government institutions. So the critique seems to be coming from that corner of the intellectual firmament. Professor uh, President Trump, also appears to have a controversy with uh, with with uh, Amazon, Jeff Bezos. But if you put it in a broader perspective, it is surprising, one, that the president is so directly engaged in matters of postal pricing, postal policy, but also that he believes that uh, attacking the post office as inefficient, as a joke, as he called it, as a political winner. For much of our history, this was simply not the case. The post office ran deficits from the 1850s until the 1960s. And outside of Congress, very few people cared. And within Congress, very few congressmen were willing to make fundamental changes. They debated the postal deficit every year. Some of them were quite substantial, running to millions of dollars. In the end, they voted the post office the money. Since 1960, excuse me, since 1970, post offices no longer a line item. That was a result of controversies beginning in the 1960s over how to structure it. Since that time, the post office has borrowed like other organizations. But it has rarely been a major issue of political contention. In fact, surprising as it might seem to 
some of your listeners, the 1870s and 80s, it was more common for reform-minded Americans, including a lot of business leaders, to contend the post office should take over Western Union, the telegraph giant, the electrical uh, purveyor of electrical uh, media, that the Western Union should take over the post office. In other words, much more criticism in the 19th century was directed at nascent corporations than at a government organization like the post office. So what we see today is quite different. And I've been racking my brains to think of instances in which the president of the United States has gotten so directly involved in postal policy. In our past, it's generally been handled by Congress since 1970 by the Postal Regulatory Commission, not by the President of the United States. How, how much money are we talking about uh, the post office getting from the federal government and, and needing from the federal government, more or less, do you know? Well, I mean, there, if every, every day we read about billions and billions. But look, the 2006 Act to uh, streamline the post office obliged postal administration to pay forward the pensions of postal workers. And that's several hundred billion dollars. That's a kitty for present and future postal workers. If that were taken off the books, the post office, according to former Inspector General David Williams, would be more or less breaking even up until coming of this pandemic, which has reduced revenue. How substantially? Um, the estimates vary. But it just seems to me odd that if we're bailing out cruise company, cruise ship companies, if we're bailing out uh, golf courses, that we make an exception of the post office, given the enormous importance of the post office in so many parts of the country to day-to-day life. And I don't think you could say that about golf courses or uh, cruise ship companies. And that, to me, is a sign that this is part of a, uh, a deliberate and rather ideologically uh, a driven campaign to delegitimate the government as a provider of essential goods and services. So it has more to do with the attack on Social Security and the attack on, um, on, on Medicare, the attack on Obamacare, than it does with any specific issue at our present moment. And, and for that reason, I think it's, uh, I don't, you know, I'm not a prophet, historians make poor profits, but I don't think it's going to succeed. I think there's a wellspring of support for the post office, especially in parts of the country that are not necessarily well represented in the Sunday morning talk shows. Uh, states often colored red on electoral maps. Uh, support for the institution that will uh, persuade lawmakers to uh, slow down uh, with the more radical proposals that are being floated by the Secretary of Treasury and uh by present. It does seem ridiculous uh, when trillions are being handed out for more dubious things and over a trillion dollars a year routinely for a military with the Pentagon never so much as passing an audit or winning a war uh, to go after the, pe- the, the post office as a, as a failed enterprise, as a bad business. Uh, when, as you write, uh, through much of U.S. history, it wasn't considered a business at all, correct? That's absolutely right. If we go back to the founders of the Republic, and I I do think it's important to take the long view we're talking about the post office. The founders of the Republic envisioned the post office knitting Republic together as providing a means for the circulation of information on public affairs to create an informed citizenry. These were all written into the Foundational Post Office Act, which was enacted in 1792. 
key figure in its passage, James Madison. George Washington, president at the time, wanted all newspapers, which were then the primary vehicle for circulation and information in public affairs, he wanted all newspapers to go in the mail without charge. Before 1792, newspapers had not gone in the mail as a matter of right. After 1792, they did. And that was a remarkable policy innovation because it meant that Americans would get access to not only the administration's version of events, but the version of events being put forth by the opposition press on a non-preferential basis. 1792, James Madison, George Washington. Even more fundamental, I think, although it's harder to get it across in a short period of time, was that Congress retained control over the designation of new routes, over the expansion of the network. That is to say, from 1792 until the 1870s, if you wanted a new post route into your hamlet or some rural town or village, you would petition Congress, and Congress almost always established the route. That's the kind of close connection since 1792 that the post offices had with Congress, not a business. It was explicitly uh, discussed and debated as late as the 1950s. Is the post office a business? No. It's providing an essential service for ordinary people. And by the way, there's a third clause of the 1792 Act that's um, often forgotten, and that's the clause that mandates that Letters, that is to say personal information, would go through the mail without being surveilled. It was opposition to the surveillance state that existed at that time in Britain and France, other imperial countries. You would be able to send and receive information through the mail, absolute security, no government snooping. So those three pillars, that is to say, low rates for periodicals, 95% of the weight of the mail, magazines and newspapers, Never more than 15% of the revenue, huge subsidy for the press. Also, expansion without regard for cost. Almost none of those post routes were ever turned down. Congress voted them every year. Big post route bill. And third, what we would now call privacy, term that was not used at the time. That's what we mean when we talk about post office, binding the nation together, making it possible for the republic to flourish as the founders had intended. And that's what it appears that the uh, Secretary of Treasury and the President today are intent upon undermining. And I, I just believe the wisdom of the founders is something we should not be so quick to uh, brush aside. We're speaking with Richard John, professor from Columbia University, author of the recent article, The Founders Never Intended the U.S. Postal Service to be Managed Like a Business. Uh, Richard, let me play devil's advocate for a second. Let's say in the past, the post office had a huge impact on journalism, bigger than the First Amendment, uh, made newspapers available. Hardly anybody reads mm -hmm. the things anymore. The routes are already built and there's a route everywhere. And uh, not that many people since the George W. Bush era believe that stuff about their mail being private from the government any longer. What, what do we lose today if we lose the post office? That's an excellent question. And let me just frame it this way. A lot of your listeners are in big cities. In big cities, we have Federal Express, we have UPS. They may not have gone to the post office a long time. They may only receive junk mail. When they do go to the post office, they wait in long lines. There are other parts of the country small towns, rural hamlets, and just the wide-open spaces of the West, where the post office is a much more vital institution. And those voices are of, of the supporters of the post office from those parts of the, that part of the country, much 
less likely to be heard on the Sunday morning talk shows. After I wrote the uh, Washington Post op-ed, received a letter from a veteran uh, who was receiving uh, pharmaceuticals, drugs through the mail, which were essential to his health. And he said to me, you know, he tried Federal Express, he tried UPS, he tried other character carriers, but only the post office delivered. So for some Americans, and especially those Americans who were living outside of the kind of East Coast, West Coast uh, bubble, post office remains a vital institution today, believe it or not. And if our election in November is conducted by mail-in ballot, then we're all going to see the essential role of the post office as fundamentally uh, propping up and helping to sustain democratic self-government. Post office is also important for small businesses, helping them to move goods. Uh, small businesses that are set up in small towns would be prohibitively expensive to rely on UPS or Federal Express. And think about those long lines in the big city post office. One reason there's so many people standing in line with parcels of all shapes and sizes to mail them is because the post office is so much cheaper than Federal Express and UPS. And that's a factor I think that's easy to forget about. There are many Americans for whom low-cost delivery of parcels remains extraordinarily important. Not so important maybe for college professors or for pundits on the talk shows or for lawmakers, but for a lot of ordinary Americans, those cost issues really matter. Without the post office, mailing goods could become much more expensive, maybe impossible in some parts of the country, and there's going to be a real cost for the fabric of everyday life. Uh, you make a very powerful case. I'm sold uh, completely. The, the 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 election seems a, a particularly uh, powerful point to pile on uh, all the rest of them. I, I mean, if if we lose the post office, uh, will there be any other capacity to hold an election if there is a pandemic like this? Uh, and the, 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 given given the things serious and absurd that the U.S. government does in the name of democracy. How can it? How can it possibly not uh, take this uh, simple step of of upholding the U.S. Postal Service uh, to protect to to protect the possibility of democracy? I I agree entirely. It's not simply mail-in ballots. Also, the census. There are uh, forms that ordinary Americans may need. It may be hard to go to an office to get that you could get through the mail. Post office has a very long. Uh, history and a lot of experience with fumigating the mail. This is not the first pandemic that the post office has, uh, has, has worked through. There are procedures in place. And the sheer scale of the organization is something I think that is hard for us to really grasp. Half of all the world's mail goes through the United States Postal Service. It's about a half million, 500,000 men and women, including a disproportionate number of African Americans and veterans who found in the post office a, a, a kind of a, a way to become part of the middle class. Good jobs that are helping to preserve the fundamental movement of goods and information and services upon which our republic relies. Let me raise another question about possible futures. Uh, certain Democratic candidates have been raising the issue of postal banking. For much of the 20th century, the United States Post Office operated a banking service. Six percent of Americans do not have bank accounts today. If we're interested 
in a capitalistic economy, a commercial economy where everyone can participate, it would seem to me important that we find a way for that 6% of Americans to get access to the, uh, what is it, becoming a basic and essential element of uh, of commercial economy, to help them to participate in the economy, independent of public life. So there's a lot of reasons, I think, that we should be wary of these radical proposals being floated to undermine an institution that was absolutely essential to our founders' vision of good government, and maybe even a little suspicious of the intention of the public maker of the public figures who are who are raising such an issue at this perilous time in in our collective history. Do do you think that the good jobs provided and the the relatively high number of them unionized jobs with some rights for workers provided and the and the possibility of of local non predatory public banking and maybe public internet and other such services has something to do with the opposition to the post office? You know, I've wondered about this, and I haven't studied the present-day opposition. I have studied opposition to the post office in the 1830s and 40s, and in that period, opposition was much greater than it is today, and it was often coming from commercial centers, it was coming not only from journalists, but also from entrepreneurs who wanted to break into the market, and who in fact did break into the market and undermined post office revenue, uh, or, or took post office revenue and undermined the effectiveness of the service on and on uh, the key kind of East Coast conduit. Um, what's fascinating to me is how common those criticisms were in the 1830s and 40s and how rapidly they disappeared. Uh, they're, they're really, in popular culture, the only place they survive is in the novel Crying of Lot 39 by Thomas Pynchon, who writes about this with really quite uh, wonderful imagination and ingenuity. But it dropped out of our public imagination the libertarian critique of the postal monopoly, arguments about its constitutionality, which were widely voiced in the 1830s and 40s. That disappeared for the rest of the 19th century, but it was much more common to criticize corporations for not operating like the post office than it was the post office for not operating like corporations. The post office principle, so-called, that is to say, the presumption that ordinary people should be able to send information throughout the country at a uniform rate, anywhere, on a regular schedule, seven days a week. That was a principle that corporations were criticized for falling short of and that the post office was upholding. So you don't, you, there is no continuous tradition of critique of the post office as an institution the revival of the critique from the 1830s and 40s, you can see in the 1950s and 60s, it's largely an ideological think tank-driven critique, uh, kind of with astroturf uh, support. It's never been a popular movement, and I don't believe it'll be a popular movement today. Post Office is the most popular federal government agency, according to a recent Pew survey, and I don't see any reason why that would change. Ninety percent, you wrote in your article, uh, support the. That was the, what the, the the most recent survey I saw uh, reached that conclusion. I think it was by Pew. Yeah, very high. Um, I mean, it's much higher than Congress. It's much higher than the presidency. It's much higher than any other federal government uh, agency. And it may that may be because the pollsters are reaching out beyond the uh, Beltway and the Sunday morning talk shows, and they're trying to get out to the hinterland and figure out what ordinary Americans actually think. Uh, the, the, the clerk, the city clerk, 
is often criticized, in part because you, you're in a hurry, you want to get your parcel delivered, but your mailman uh, is, is likely to be a, a fixture in the neighborhood and uh, somebody who keeps an eye out on what's going on and somebody who you're, you're sympathetic toward. There are an awful lot of mailmen. Yeah out there. Yes, indeed. Male women, too. Uh, or it, postal workers, it's, I should uh, say. women, too. Yeah, it's, that was a slip. You know, there's a, there's, <laughs> a, there's a critique of a lot of U.S. government programs, social welfare programs, uh, that they are different from those in, for example, Scandinavian countries in not being mm-hmm. universal, in distinguishing the deserving from mm-hmm. the undeserving, whereas the post office provides a, a, a universal, public, affordable service. Uh, you, you know, does mm-hmm. that does that have something to do both with its popularity and with the the opposition? I mean, if the post office didn't exist and someone were trying to create it now, it would be denounced as socialistic madness, would it not? That's a fascinating question, and I've looked at a little bit at the various projects to, exp- to, to privatize post office in Europe, and I've asked myself, you know, why is the United States different? And one reason the United States is different is because we really believe in the constitutional order. The post office is in the Constitution. And because it's in the Constitution and because Congress got control over it, it has really been an agent of the American people for an extraordinarily long time. And in one specific way, the United States is very big spatially. It is very hard to imagine Federal Express, UPS, Amazon, Walmart taking over functions that the post office performed. A couple of years ago, there was some talk about cutting back on postal service. Federal Express and UPS came to the defense of the postal service because they don't want to take over the tasks that the post office takes on because of this peculiar feature of the United States. We are so decentralized. There are so many parts of the country where it would be inconceivable that you could provide the same service at a, a low price. And even if you if you gave a contract to a Federal Express or a UPS, or what if Amazon were to take over the distribution network, those corporations don't have the same kind of civic mandate as the post office. They could go out of business. They could move into a new market. The post office isn't like that. It, it was not intended to be a business, and though Congress has tried to fashion it into corporation, Congress has retained control as such that it cannot function like a business today. Let me give you one more example. Congress not only mandates things that the post office can and should do, but it also mandates a lot of things the post office cannot do, constraining postal administrators from, for example, setting up uh, uh, ancillary services inside post offices, removing into uh, new markets. And, and these are challenges that are uh, uh, understandable because of the power of lobbying, lobbyists are supposed to do, look after the interests of their sector, but it it has helped to constrain the post office. So in one sense, the post office is a very expansive mandate, universal, and uh, in another sense, it has a very limited and constrained mandate that the postmaster general can't even shut down uh, mail delivery on Saturdays if he wants to, which was an issue a couple of years ago. And independent of whether or not that's a good idea or a bad idea, it's just a, a sign of the extent to which the institution is constrained and embedded in our political process, and in particular, in um, relationship, it has a close relationship with Congress. <clears throat> uh, it also has now, uh, as I understand, a top Trump and GOP donor as new Postmaster General. Uh, how's that uh, going to work out? 
the historian, this is a this is just a fascinating uh, fact that a, a Politico is postmaster general because for much of our history, Politicos were postmaster general. Larry O'Brien under uh, Lyndon Johnson was the last uh, postmaster general in this mold. It was said you could always tell after the convention who the postmaster general was going to be was it was the head of the party. It's the, the money bags, the person who's in charge of patronage jobs, because every four years, thousands, tens of thousands of postmasterships change depending upon what party was in power, and there were a lot of lucrative contracts. Well, as you know better than I do, since the Second World War, the uh, Congress has found a lot of other ways <laughs> to reward supporters besides uh, post office patronage. Right? We've got a big military, we've got a lot of public works. So that post office patronage became relatively less important. And this is one of the real rationales for the 1970 reorganization that gave us the U.S. Postal Service. That, that's when that name came in. It was the Post Office Department before 1970. The idea was, let's take it out of politics. Let's run it more like a business in the sense that it was going to be run on the basis of efficiency and providing a service and not political prerequisite for the party in power. Uh, President Trump, by signaling He's going to put a, a political supporter, a major fundraiser for the Republican Party, into postmastership is, uh, is suggesting that we should move back to that more politicized post office. And I would submit that there was a good reason to take politics out of the post office, because it can interfere with its day-to-day -day operations. Uh, how this will play out? Difficult to say. I would keep an eye on that uh, several hundred billion dollar pension fund, which the post office has been obliged to uh, pay forward. I'd keep an eye on that pot of money because um, that is a, a resource that a politicized postmaster general might want to uh, take advantage of. <clears throat> We've just got a couple minutes left. Richard, John, what, uh, what should be happening? What should people be doing? And how can people uh, keep up with you and your work? Well, I'm on Twitter. Um, you can follow me there. I've done a number of uh, media uh, interviews. You can check out my uh, website where I put up the articles that I've published on topics having to do not only with the post office, but also with the telegraph economy. Um, the, perhaps the most practical thing that ordinary Americans can do and ordinary Americans are doing is that old-fashioned write letters or make your uh, lawmakers aware of the fact that you are concerned about your local post office. There's been a lot of post office closings uh, in recent years, and there's a pretty active uh, bottom-up movement to save individual post offices. Steve Hutkins at NYU has been uh, leading uh, such an initiative. That's something that uh, ordinary people can do and are doing, because the prospect of losing a small-town post office or even a post office in your neighborhood uh, is, a, is a major issue for uh, many Americans. But I think more broadly is that it would help us in thinking about post office to ask how it is different, how it is different, and why it has mattered in our past. In other words, to take, to take a moment to step back from the political turmoil of our own day and ask why so many statesmen in American history have emphasized the centrality of this institution in public life, so many journalists, so many writers, why did they so important, and how can that uh, spirit, that civic mandate, be updated for our own age? Because everybody knows the Internet's not going away. Um, everyone knows 
that uh, the post office is not as important as it was when it was 90% of all federal government jobs, the wellspring of democracy, circulating newspapers and magazines that made popular self-government possible. It's not going to play that role. But can we think creatively about what it might do in the future as an exercise of reminding ourselves of what is it that holds us together as a people? Very good advice. We'll have to leave it there. We've been speaking with Richard John, Columbia University. Richard, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. Read or listen to today's Peace Almanac entry at peacealmanac.org. All past shows can be heard at talknationradio.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is supported by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.